Welcome back to the Accelerators Podcast. We are radiation oncologists, Drs. Matt Spraker, Simil Parikh, and Anna Lauschus, and we're bringing you oncology news and views with guests from all over the field. Note, the discussions on this show are not medical advice, and they represent our own opinions and not those of our employers. And now, on with the show. Hey everyone, it's Simil Parikh from the Accelerators. I'm a radiation oncologist in Port Huron, Michigan, and we are here to talk about a poll I put up on Twitter. We were talking about preoperative doses for esophageal cancer, preoperative chemoradiation doses for esophageal cancer. I found the results to be quite surprising and definitely the commentary as well. Uh, we're here to discuss this um, and the nature of standard of care and changing practice with uh, my good friends. <laughs> well, so we, I'm Matt Spraker. I'm one of the accelerators as well. I'm coming from Denver, Colorado to this episode, and I'm very excited to be here with our guests today. And I'm Anna Lauschen. It's one of the other accelerators and I'm coming to you from Green Bay, Wisconsin. And yeah, really excited to have our guests on this show. I'm Chris Jethlo. I'm a GI radiation oncologist at Mayo Clinic and really thrilled to be here. Thanks for having us. And I'm Yasmin today. I'm a PGY3 at Mayo Clinic Rochester. All right, well, we can dive in. Uh, maybe I can just review the text of the poll really quick so that um, people can kind of know what we're talking about. Okay, so uh, the poll that Simmel posted was, what is your pre-op soft dose? And he gave an example of a patient, 60-year-old patient that is healthy with a T3N1 M0 distal esophageal cancer. And the plan was for chemo radiation and then surgery. And he was asking for comments uh, about treatment technique, but the question was mainly about the dose. So the choices are 41.4 gray, 45 gray, 50 to 54 gray, sorry, 50 to 50.4 gray, uh, and then other. And the results were, were fascinating. Uh, just briefly, 50.1% uh, had 50 to 50.4 gray. 41.4%, that's weird, had 41.4 gray. Uh, and then the remainder had 45 gray with like one or two votes for, for other. Um, so really like a half and half split between the 41.4, the cross regimen, and then the 50 to 50.4, or I guess what I call the ROT, the RTOG regimen. Um, do you guys have thoughts about that? It was really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say like, as we were talking about a few minutes ago, I, I trained 2006 to 2010 and we used the same dose for Pre-op, definitive, post-op, basically 50 gray, somewhere around 50 gray. And then this study came out in 2012, 2013, cross-study, uh, and they used 41.4 gray. They did APPA fields, and they had good outcomes uh, being superior to surgery in terms of survival and local regional control. I would say, like, my my friends or my peers did not immediately change. Um, first, we felt that the dose just seemed low compared to what we had used in the past. Um, we worried about the patient not making it to surgery and then us being a little bit short on dose. Uh, and thirdly, it was a really unfamiliar dose. Like it just, it, it seemed to come out of nowhere for a lot of us. Um, and again, where I'm more interested in less of the clinical aspect of this, but more of the discussion of like how we make decisions, how we change our practice, what standard of care is, um, and I'd love to hear from, uh, Chris and Yasmin who are a little fresher than us. Well, Anna too, actually, I mean, it's when you're out, just kind of how you kind of thought about esophageal cancer and how you 
all are determining what your internal standard of care is? I think that's a great question. And going back to your poll, I, I think everything in that spectrum from 40 gray to 50 gray is, is within reason. I think there's data to support any of those and your clinical judgment, you know, with, with the patient that you see um, on the day-to-day is really comes into play. And in that scenario, you know, you could have a patient that's, you know, very, you know, very noticeably going to have an operation with good performance status and a disease burden burden that's amenable to it. And I think, you know, 40 to 41.4 is great in that circumstance. Um, and then you have a, may, may have a patient that is, you know, less likely to go ahead with an operation and maybe 50 grade may be more appropriate for that. Um, but your, your question about how to use the data and, you know, base your decision upon that, I think in the esophagus cancer realm, you could use data to support almost any of those decisions at this point. And honestly, I, even if a, a clinical trial is done comparing dose, I'm not convinced that it would shift practice all that much. Uh, I, I think people will still use it to support, you know, whatever they're currently doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that seems to happen with a lot of the discussions of anything that shows change. Uh, Yasmin, you're still in training. Curious to see what you're, how you're thinking about this or structuring how you're going to be making clinical decisions. Yeah, I think as I was mentioning earlier, like in the GU realm, even within the last year, there's been a somewhat of a shift in adjuvant versus, you know, salvage radiation after prostatectomy. And seeing that just within my one year of training has made me realize that I really do need to stay open-minded when it comes to changes in possible treatment paradigm and kind of looking to always like older colleagues, more experienced folks and how they think about things um, and how they critically analyze uh, research studies. I do think that for me, uh, papers that, you know, review or meta-analyze data are really helpful. Um, I know that Dr. Jethwa had uh, shared the Ying Li and Yang Chang paper with me that was reviewing kind of the differences in dose, the 4140 versus like higher BEDs. And, you know, as with many meta-analyses, there are limitations, but I think reading through that kind of gets the juices flowing in my head and thinking about whether or not I'd be willing to adopt something and then starting to convince other people to adopt it as well. Because the issue in our field is there's so much delayed gratification, right? We don't see the immediate results of what we do. And I think that's where kind of older, wiser um, recommendations would help me guide my decision-making as well in terms of whether or not I would adopt something. I think it's, it, you know, it's, it's, I found the poll so fascinating because the responses to it. Um, I couldn't find it this morning when I was like reviewing it again, but I swear somebody made the comment that they felt like, 50 gray was harmful because 4140 has evidence of benefit. And so if you're going over that, that, that it's like harmful. And I, I found that to be a little surprising because it, you know, it is the control arm for like the current open NRG trial. So like to imply that that dose is harmful with like the number of people that must've reviewed the protocol for that trial before it was approved is, is sort of surprising. And I realize it is like a quote American dose because it's what we've kind of always used in the RTOG setting. Um, but I had sort of an interesting, like different. So when I was uh, training, I, I kind of was pitched the same thing. Like you should use 50 because you can't predict if people are going to end up really going to surgery or not. I do think there's some truth to that. Um, I, I, I feel like people that feel that are acting like they can accurately predict that with every patient is, is probably not the case, but there was some really helpful 
comments in the thre- in the comments of the the poll about how people kind of speak with the surgeons up front and they make them commit to surgery if they're going to do the 50 gray or things like that. Um, and I thought that was really smart. And, and those kind of like little, little bits or things that I pick up a lot on Twitter that I definitely incorporate into my, into my practice. But, but I think I said earlier, I, I walked away feeling like I'm overdosing people with esophagus now, because there were so many people that were supportive of 4140 that I was actually really surprised because I was always taught it was like a European regimen that isn't used all that much in the United States. And and I never really saw it because of where I trained. We always treated people with a 50. Um, so it's just kind of, it's, I think it's just sort of interesting. It's, um, I mean, the other, the other part, we, we focus on the dose, the radiation dose change, the chemotherapy is different too, right? It's carbotax and growing up or whatever, you know, in training, it was not carbotax. It was cysts and five of you, I think. Yeah. I should know that. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, system 5FU, but everybody's changed the chemo. All pre-op are getting carbotax now. So then I wonder, like, maybe when I'm going to 45 or 50 and that's having some sort of interaction with the dose, but no one's really explained this. And then regimens haven't gone up against each other. That, that was the thing that was really interesting to me, that, like, how how uh, certain people were uh, that that should be the standard, even though they both compared to surgery alone as the control arm. And that, that to me is really interesting. The judgment of other people's practice as incorrect or old or, you know, no longer standard of care. Um, and I, I think we internally and externally judge ourselves a lot in radiation oncology, more so than I see in other specialties. Like, I don't know. I don't see surgeons talking to each other about technique or medical oncologists, about that. like we are so harsh to each other about this stuff. And I think it's, it's interesting too, just kind of from a younger perspective that, um, you know, like in my training, I actually pretty much, uh, overwhelmingly treated patients to 41.4, you know, with really the cross trial as the, as the justification, um, really there were kind of select instances, which I think I put in, in kind of my reply to that poll on Twitter, uh, where, you know, we would plan patients to like 50.4, um, if they, if they were like still smoking and essentially the, the key thing I think was having a multidisciplinary discussion and really making sure that patients surgeon <laughs> up front to make sure that they were, um, you know, eligible for, for surgery and a surgical candidate and, and really trying to get the surgeon to commit, you know, one way or the other. So that way there could be a definitive plan, but in instances where, you know, for example, like patient was still smoking and they were trying to quit, but it was unclear whether they would be able to quit by the time of surgery. There were actually two treatment plans for that patient. One was 41.4 and one was 50.4. And then kind of just depending how the smoking cessation went, you know, and so kind of planning for all instances. It's interesting because now being in practice, um, it's actually been more the um, kind of, uh, I guess, <laughs> older school technique, I don't want to use that phrase, but, um, you know, of really treating all patients to 50.4. And actually what's interesting about, uh, you know, where I'm right now, right, is like the thoracic surgeons are actually at another institution. And so we, you know, all patient, they may not even see the surgeon until they've started their treatment. And so, um, you know, in that case, it's kind of thinking about health disparities and and kind of patterns of care, right? Like I train at a very large academic institution. I'm more in the community setting and the availability of certain surgical 
um, you know, experts may kind of impact practices. So all my patients now are being treated to 50.4, even though that's kind of the opposite of how I you know, trained. So I think it's interesting to think about it in that context. But, but to your point, um, Simil, about like, how do we, you know, maybe we're a little, you know, judgmental in our field. Yeah, I, th- I think it's interesting, right? Because I think we each come in with our own biases, you know, the way that we trained, you know, sometimes there can be some kind of, you know, you know, one or single, you know, focus on on what we do, but it actually has been really eye-opening practicing in a different type of uh, health setting now with different availability of surgical experts. And, and that really has a large influence on practice patterns. Um, so kind of that conventional wisdom is is changed. And so I think I am by nature a lot more open-minded about it, not really judgmental. Yeah, I would say, Matt, to your point about kind of the harm, really the only time where there was any debate about that, like when I was in training was if people went to like 60 degree, which I think I only saw one or two times. Um, but there, there is kind of evidence of, okay, we don't really just escalate to that extent in esophagus, right? Yeah. Even evidence for that, though, is kind of weak, right? I think that's the classic sort of teaching yeah. study that like, you know, the harm was actually done before they reached the dose escalated levels. So we don't really know. And there's actually, you know, there are people um, we had an open phase one trial in my last job where they were looking at dose escalation for people who were deemed unresectable up front. So it was a kind of a different population. It was yeah. a little bit, um, as the treating physician, it was a bit scary, but it was a cool idea. And those people definitely need help. So I think it's, it's a, it's a good trial and, and, and worth doing for sure. I think what you said is really interesting. And just to go back to kind of Simmel's point as well, I like, you know, I wonder if why we have so much trouble being open-minded about how we treat or different ways of treating is just because we all train at singular places that, um, you know, we like just now I'm in a, in a new job where we're kind of building up our pathways and you want to be consistent with your partners. It's a good thing to be internally consistent. But then if you're a trainee, that's like all you ever see is one way of doing things. And I didn't really have exposure to new ways of doing things until I was studying for oral boards with people outside of my institution. And I felt like, I think I mentioned this on a prior episode, but when you come into a new place and you're like very um, strong headed or strong willed about how you want to do things, it actually can hurt you, I think, in the, in how you're received. Um, so with this new job, um, I'm actually like being super passive and just exploring what people are doing and giving, you know, and I find that like a lot of people, maybe it's a community practice thing, but a lot of people are very open-minded and they want to know like what you think we should be doing. And then we have more of a discussion about it. And it seems to be uh, a little bit more like just, you know, all of these ways are good, that kind of a thing. So I don't, yeah. Yeah. I agree with you, Maddie, that I've been at a couple places now and it's, it's interesting to learn, you know, how strong the institutional preference to do it, you know, in one specific way is. And in esophagus, it's pretty interesting that there's differences in, you know, the dose that you're choosing, the technique that you're using, are you boosting with a simultaneous boost or sequentially at 1.8 per day? And, and you know, how much elective expansion are you including? Are you including elective regional nodes, which differed across some of those studies that were done? And, and you know, each of those things has interplay with the potential cardiac and lung toxicity from our treatment. So it's, it's interesting. And what's really interesting based on the polls that we saw is that on social media for Radon, people express strong opinions. Uh, and there's no way that people are like that in person. At least I wouldn't imagine so. I'm guilty of that, I swear. I, yeah. I think 
some cases, people can be just as strong opinion in person, but I think it's probably tempered down, you know, like if you're seeing someone face to face, right, there's like a, you know, famous T-Swift lyric, I'm a huge Swift fan, but uh, about, you know, like something about essentially like if it's anonymous and online, you know, then that's kind of a coward approach versus like saying it to your face. But then again, you know, all or most of us, I guess, except for the bots, you know, have our names associated with the accounts. Um, but it is interesting and, and I think unfortunate, you know, how people attack each other, you know, because those things are are permanent. And I know this is more about, you know, how we how we change practices and really what guides that. But I do think that kind of, you know, some of the context of this episode, right, is about kind of, you know, professional and, and ethical behavior. And I think that, you know, acknowledging even if there are different approaches, and yeah, I definitely favor kind of Matt what you said, like the, you know, hey, like let's let's be open minded and consider all these different opinions. That's definitely something that I've liked about, you know, my current practice setting. And I think that um, yeah, like if we can all be open minded and acknowledge that yeah, kind of as you said earlier, Krish, that, yeah, there's essentially data to support any of these methodologies, you know, yes, in, in the absence of kind of um, that it truly caused harm, we shouldn't necessarily, you know, accuse someone of doing that because, yeah, it's been done for decades. And, and and then what does that say about the patients that have received those doses? You know, there's always like a domino effect to whatever we say and a permanency to it, even if it's deleted or, or you know, so I think that, yeah, hopefully, right, especially on something like this, where there is truly data to support a lot of different ways, and clearly the poll was quite split, um, interestingly, with that percentage for uh, cross. But um, yeah, I think if we can, you know, acknowledge that there are differences in opinion, but that, that you know, they, they all are evidence-based approaches, and, you know, kind of like my current practice setting, there may be reasons for why, especially like smaller community centers without a thoracic surgeon, go to 50.4 because actually the patient may not be able to be, you know, assessed by a surgeon prior to starting. Um, but, but that, uh, you know, the multidisciplinary care is still like we see, we make sure all patients see a surgeon, but we essentially plan them all to 50.4 um, just in case they're not a surgical candidate, right? But that was a very different approach than what I did in training. And, and both are equally acceptable, I think. So can we do a quick poll? Do you all treat elective nodes? I'm like fascinated by this topic as well. That could have been a second poll on your, on your little question. So I think. No, <laughs> no, never. N- not even celiac for like a GE junction. See, I, I, I do that. I, I treat celiac for GE junction tumors. I, I treat gastropathic and celiac nodes for a GE junction tumor, but yeah, the cross trial did not do that. So, so it's interesting. Cause like, I, I don't either. Um, I, I'm, uh, I sometimes rail against this or I used to with the trainees, because I think that the data supporting it is not very strong. There's kind of like a retrospective study where they didn't find very compelling data. And then it was one of those studies where in the discussion, they were like, well, you should do this anyway, because, <laughs> because it's, it's important or whatever. But I think I, you know, so I, I was sort of, um, I actually did, uh, at my last job because I wanted to be consistent with the group. Um, and as long as it wasn't like a huge reach, right. So if the anatomy is such that the patient you're adding like several centimeters of CTV to like cover, um, I generally would, would, would not. Um, but I'm, I'm sort of with similar, I, I'm not an elective nodal coverage person. But- but it's completely reasonable to do so. Like mm-hmm. there's there's oncologic principle that says there is microscopic disease there. It's not really unsafe. I don't think that additional volume of tissue is going to result in meaningfully different toxicity. And so if you choose to do that, like that's completely fine. And 
this is the thing like this uh dogma the dogma is so uh strong occasionally not occasionally a lot of times in our field and i i'm i'm just i've lost interest in being right like i'm more interested in being less wrong and i think that that approach i think we should look at more in oncology and more in radiation oncology especially is like don't just champion what you're doing but just make sure you're not screwing up like that should be the the underlying thing it's like that we're not causing uh a worse outcome with what we're doing rather than championing our method as being the best outcome, because like we're, we're, we're picking pieces of it, right? Like Chris, you're saying you're, you know, you do 41.4, but you're not including it or you are including notes, but they didn't do it. So then now you're not doing what they're doing. And so the, you know, so like, okay, well, I'm not treating the nodes, but my dose goes up to 50. So who's more like, you know, who's more alike to that trial? You know, I, and it's hard to say, we don't, we don't have a good answer to that. And as you said, we're all using cross chemo. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> it's Although interestingly, that's even a, a pattern of, you know, likely practice shift in coming years for adenocarcinomas. At least there's a, a greater push for using concurrent full fox as opposed to carbotaxol. It's kind of extrapolation from the CalGB trial, uh, which was really an induction study comparing full fox versus carbotaxol, not really necessarily the concurrent regimen, but I think for adenos, there's a greater push for full fox. And that is a, a st- ongoing study comparing concurrent carbotaxel versus concurrent full fox. It's the PROTECT 1402 study out of Europe. Um, so we'll at least have some clarification on that specific question in years to come. So like, if you're, if you're trying to be as objective and rational as possible, like what are the pros of going to, of stopping at 41.4. Yeah, I think there are a few. Um, I think that uh, with 4140 overall, uh, we see more R0 resections across multiple um, papers, which is surprising and uh, lower toxicity rates, right? And that's not surprising. Um, I also think just, you know, the fact that at the same, if we, again, we don't have head-to-head comparisons, but we are looking at same progression-free survivals, similar overall survivals. Uh, and so, you know, why go to this higher dose when we don't necessarily need to? Uh, and I think the one thing that's still kind of a mystery for me is I think that, you know, 50 gray does have a possible higher path CR rate, but I don't think we really use it as a surrogate for overall survival. So, you know, does that necessarily help us? Uh, I don't think so. I I just go back to what you said, like the tux, and I'm not quizzing you. I'm just asking, Mm -hmm. like, is the toxicities across those types of studies been compared? So is it lower? I, I didn't know that. Uh, It's so in the uh, if you look at all the trials, including, you know, non-modern techniques, I would say they're um, about the same. Uh, And then in this one review paper that I was looking at, again, you know, they tried to control for differences in patient population and everything. The 4140 with modern technique seemed to have lower toxicities. So do you, From my do, understanding. So you actually think, so it's funny because people talk about randomizing between those two doses. Like I think that came up a little bit in the comments. Do either of you think that there would be a difference if we did that, that study? I, I personally am not sure. It's, it's a pretty small difference in dose. So that's why I guess I just, yeah. 
but I think we were just talking about this um, with Dr. Jethwa yesterday, and he was saying that he does not think that. Um, and then, you know, I obviously brought in, and I don't know correctly or not, the discussion of whether or not we thought adding protons would help with that, um, if we would see an even bigger difference. Uh, and I know that opens up another bag of worms that was also brought up in our in the in the Twitter comments. But yeah, I think we we are thinking that we wouldn't see a sig so the, significant difference. To tease out the main thing, the one thing that we can say is an advantage is that we think potentially it's lower toxicity. I guess so. Yeah, I agree. So what's that. the disadvantages? So the main disadvantage from my standpoint is, is if you have a patient who's you know borderline resectable, who is unlikely to or may not have an operation afterwards. And, and if you think that 50 gray would be a better definitive dose than you know 40 to 41, although that's never really been looked at in a prospective study, um, that, that might provide some rationale for 50 gray. Um, so going to Matt's comment, I, I just wanted to add. You know, if we were to do that randomized study, there's almost zero chance we would find any difference in those cohorts. And, and part of that, I think, um, from what we see you know, historically, there's always a selection bias on clinical trials. Sure. You know, if, if you're a group that treats 50 gray as your standard dose, you're only going to put patients on that type of study if you think there's almost guaranteed to go ahead with an operation. If you have any doubt, your your group is going to think, oh, maybe it's unethical to put that patient on that type of study. We see the same thing in NRGGI006, which is the ongoing proton versus photon trial for esophagus cancer. It's the patients who um, we don't think are going to have a massive benefit with protons that we're putting on that study. If we have huge thoracic fields, we don't think those patients should be treated with photons because the cardiac and lung exposure is so great that by looking at dosimetry, we just don't think that's the ethical right thing to do. So we're going to see the same selection bias on the proton studies and that it's the folks with favorable disease. So I'm going to go back to my game here. So what is worse, having somewhat more acute toxicity or leaving somebody underdosed that doesn't go to surgery? Good question. <laughs> That's a good question. We, I don't think we have good data to guide that question. You know, we've never looked at 41.4 versus 50 gray as the definitive treatment for esophagus. So if, I, if, you're, if we're working on a, kind of a less wrong, if you're a community doctor, and you're thinking like, how do I best approach this problem in a way that protects the patient's best chance for cure? You can see why many of us may lean towards that if we're weighing it out. And I think that that that's kind of forgotten is that what where where we really have to like systematically think about that. Like, okay, it's so easy to shift down or up dose or whatever, you know, based on whatever's fashionable or recently published. But when they're not compared to each other, I mean, I just, in my, like, I just did this right now with Infrenius, like I'm pretty comfortable with 50 gray right now with what I just went through. It's like, I, you know, I have patients that look great the fourth week and then the end of the fifth week, they come back for their visit and they look like crap. I had a patient you know, not long ago who decided against surgery. Uh, 
And I'm glad I went up. I, I'm glad I was at a higher dose. But and again, not wrong or right for me, but I'm just like, I want to be less wrong. And I want to be in a situation where I allow my patient to get the best potential outcome. And I, I guess like acute toxicity, just, I don't know, guys, like, I just don't care that much. Like as much as I did before, like with my, like moderate hypofractionation for prostate cancer, people my age and older are like, they get sicker, they get sicker with hypofrac. And I don't like being a community practice doctor known to be a person giving toxicity. And I always think I don't treat a lot of prostate, but I'm like, it's Flomax for a couple of weeks. Like, is it, you know, we're saving four weeks of treatment, maybe seven weeks of treatment if you're doing ultra hypofrac. Um, so I, 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 I wonder like the concern about the acute toxicity it, or are you guys talking about more post-op problems too with the higher versus lower dose? Interestingly, in the systematic review, views that have been published, there, there is a suggestion of increased acute toxicity as, as well as post-operative complications, but Part of what I wonder on, on those studies is, you know, there are thousands of patients, some of which were from prospective trials that, you know, presumably with randomization, patients were comparable, but but also some are coming from retrospective series, which which weren't randomized studies. And you would anticipate that uh, the subgroup of patients getting 50 gray might have more advanced disease, maybe, you know, less operable, maybe. so to speak, um, and higher risk for both complications and, you know, more extensive disease. So I think that there are some confounders in that analysis that may also skew towards, you know, greater complications in a 50 grade cohort. Um, but I think, you know, dosimetrically speaking, we know that dose causes injury. And I, I think it would be very plausible to assume that, you know, nine to 10 extra gray would be associated with greater complications. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that would be, that'd be at a con. I mean, for a lot of dose, like they have a less chance of surviving the surgery than of course, we don't want to give them too much dose. But yeah, I think it, there's there's more to it, you know, and I, I, I hope that people can get to that idea of like, we, we just, you can't just jump so quickly and then assume that everybody is going to ride that train with you just because like you saw it, you guys, you know, this is the only definitive study, you know, like what are the ones we had to memorize in the last? The RTOG study, the Walsh, like the Irish study or whatever. Um, that used some strange, like 40 in 15 or something like that, right? I forgot the dose, but it was it was hypofrac, but like much bigger doses than we were using in the 90s or early 2000s. And and yeah, so it's a, it's it's definitely entertaining. I, I I do these polls a lot of times. If you notice, the polls that I put up tends to look at practice variation, and I just I don't know. There's a little part of me that likes to rile up people, but it's always it was always neat to see what people are doing out there um, because it's not, it's not always what you think um, based on the responses. It sounds like a lot of people are just like, wait, you're not doing 41, you know, like, yeah, we, we all do different things and it's okay. Yeah. I thought yeah, it was interesting as well. Um, and, and I thought actually the distribution is about what I would have predicted it to be, you know, <laughs> almost a 50, 50 split. It would be interesting like to know. Yeah. I think it would be interesting to know, like, like we see on some of these questionnaire polls that have been published recently is the demographics and practice locations of the folks within each of the subsets. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to know more about that too. Yes. I mean, it looked like you were going to jump in and say something. 
Oh, I think uh, Dr. Jethro kind of answered my question. My thought process was, I guess, when you, uh, Dr. Prague, when you posted the poll, were you expecting there to be a 50-50 split or a kind of, you know, what was your thought? Um, because my thought as a resident is that I feel like my colleagues are pretty open-minded. Um, and so I thought that 41-40 would have been higher than it was. Um but I thought it would be 80, 20 for the higher dose. Honestly, like I, that's, I, I was surprised at how many people had switched and it kind of made me rethink a few things. You know, again, I lean high. So my, my kind of thing for, all right, I'll use 23 fractions, but part of it's getting too gray a fraction. <laughs> like I gotta, I gotta do more than 41.4. I just don't feel that comfortable yet. So can I ask, as we're like heading towards the end of our time here, I want, so is anyone using the different doses on a patient by patient basis? Or do you, I guess this is probably the, the most, like probably most appropriate question for Krish. Like, do you pick a dose up front and everyone gets that dose or are you uh, kind of deciding patient by patient? Um, and obviously this is not uh, like, obviously if you're not putting someone on a trial, so like that, you know, then you don't have to decide, they just tell you. So it's, that's kind of nice about trials. Yeah, I, I treat almost 100% of patients with 25 fractions, 50 gray, and 45 gray elective, and, and most are getting carbotaxel. And I, I do encompass elective regional nodes. And just like you mentioned, when would I you know, change from that? Almost entirely, it's patients being put on a clinical trial that specifies an alternative dose schedule. And for NRG, that ends up being 50.4 and 28 with sequential boost. And then the, we have the ECOG Akron trial looking at new adjuvant IPI NEVO combined with concurrent chemo radiation and uh, slight preference on that protocol is to stick with 41.4. And I, I lowered the dose recently because patient had a hiatal hernia and the stomach was like way up in the field. And so I went down on the dose, but that's anatom anatomic and unusual. I, I'm more open to it now. You know, I don't necessarily need to go to you know, feel the need to go aside. I still, you know, the dose escalation trial for definitive treatment, I, that's still, I know there's like now two negative studies, but I just don't understand. I just don't understand that. It does. Thoracic like, radiation is toxic. That's uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Interestingly, um, there's also two other studies in addition to Art Deco and Intergroup that have been presented but not published yet. So okay. the Prodige 26 was also a prospective study, you know, 50 versus 66 gray. Yeah. Mostly squames. That was a negative trial. Jeez. Uh, there's also another randomized study um, out of China that looked at 50 versus 60 gray for entirely squames, also a negative yeah. trial. Yeah. So, you know, in essence, we have at least four randomized studies at this point, um, two of which published, and we don't see any benefit. Fine, fine. I'll back down on that one. Well, so I was going to ask though. So, do you think so? If GI006 is like positive in some way, you know, whether it's overall positive or there's like you know positive kind of non-primary findings, um, do you think that someone's going to take another run at it with protons? They probably already are. I'm guessing there's probably some institutional study out there that's looking at dose escalation with protons. But any thoughts there? Yeah. So, what do you think? We were actually, you know, funnily enough, just discussing this yesterday. I know. Um, well, I think uh, we were talking about that maybe we would see a difference in toxicity, right? And but it would probably still end up being negative for the overall survival and just like outcomes. 
This is the interesting thing in that if you look at every one of the dose escalation studies, the one single endpoint you would anticipate improving with dose escalation would be local control. If you're going to improve anything, that would be the single endpoint you'd improve. None of the studies have improved that. Ranging from intergroup was the first published, Art Deco, and then now more recently, Prodis trial. Not a single study has improved local control. None of them have improved overall survival. Um, and you know, interestingly, in the more recent ones that have also reported toxicity, they're also not reporting much for increased acute toxicity. But we know that the competing risk for these patients that are getting big thoracic volumes, it's, it's subacute to late cardiac toxicity, which is underreported as a cause of death, and, and likewise pulmonary toxicity. So, you know, in the absence of at least improving local control for this disease with dose escalation, I don't think there's that much role for, for repeating it. Someone will inevitably do it with protons, um, but I'm not convinced we would see an improvement. Um, but perhaps by reducing that competing risk of cardiac toxicity and lung toxicity, you know, perhaps we would. We'll have to wait for carbon ions. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you guys will have them, right? I probably shouldn't make that joke on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> there is actually a prospective carbon trial that was published last year. It's a for esophagus? Series. Yeah. It's a small series um, out of uh, Asia, I believe. That's in the Red Journal. Uh, but it's not randomized. It's just a kind of a prospective feasibility trial looking at carbons for esophagus. I'll have to link that. And one other item I thought was interesting from the discussion was that um, we were discussing the strength of evidence regarding certain treatment techniques. You know, for example, what is the strength of evidence for proton therapy? And um, there was a comment that the strength of evidence was low at best or something like that. And it got, it got me thinking, you know, in their prospective randomized study, yeah, we kind of made up an endpoint, you know, total toxicity burden, which hadn't been used before, but it's still prospective data and it's still suggested that total toxicity burden was improved. Oh man, I, that interaction really bugged me. Uh, Dr. Fortyhands. Dr. Fortyhands. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I know, you know, it's funny as I screenshotted that to actually bring it up. And so thank you for the reminder there because I forgot to do that. Um, I, I just want to say, I actually, I like those accounts in general. I know I say that a lot because I think they say things that, you know, sometimes need to be said. And, and so I thought it was, I, I agree with you. I, I do not agree that that study is a low quality of evidence. Um, I think it's fair when people criticize the MD Anderson study for feeling a little bit like it's like p hacking kind of like in a way, because they couldn't like the benefit is only really shown if you do this really complicated math to basically add up all the toxicities. But on the other hand, I would, I, I think actually tracking toxicity and showing difference between patients is really challenging. If anyone does these kinds of studies, especially if you do it with like patient reported outcomes, they're just really noisy. So I think like, you know, and there's all kinds of things that cause toxicity that are just like random chance that you have no control over. So I think that it's not, it's really hard to show a clean study like that, which is sort of why I agree that GIO six, when you look at the design, you kind of wonder, if it's going to be positive or not, just because of the way that they selected the endpoints. But you know, one thing that, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I didn't want to. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I think it's important to point out, like, why is it wrong to sum the toxicities? Like if that's the way we did it in the past, and then suddenly all of a sudden people are like, no, no, we should, we should break out by uh, acute GI and all this stuff. Then the, the critics would say, 
this is a weird way to do it. Why would you break it out? Doesn't the whole toxicity burden matter? You know, it's just, it's a matter of like, it's new. So it has to be worse or, you know, sometimes it has to be better. Like new just means new. Like we'll figure out whether it's right or wrong or good or bad, but at the, at the moment, new just means new. And I think it was a really cool way to look at toxicity. Like as much as I'm like a proton hater, I would say, you know, at times, like I'm not very positive towards protons. I like that study. That's, that's novel to me. And maybe that's the way we look at it. And maybe that becomes the new endpoint. And that's how we got to look at it. It's got a global, like it's a broader point, but we don't really know how this works, how this all, <laughs> how this all works, like radiation and toxicity. We think we do. And every few years we get some new information that really flips us, you know, flips us over on how we think about things. I do like it too. And I, I would just add that it actually is in line with my experience in clinic treating with protons. Um, I, this is, it's the one play I hate. I cannot stand when people are like, well, this is what I see in clinic. So that's true. And like, that's just like not scientific, but um, I would absolutely agree that just in clinic patients with protons, they, they, they just seem like they do much better. I mean, I really see, less toxicity in most people, whether that comes out objectively in the randomized trial time will tell, but I, I would agree with what you're saying. What really was fascinating about that interaction though, was, um, you all started talking about thresholds for deciding to use protons. Like what are the dosimetric parameters, right? I don't know if you remember what I'm referring to, but you were talking about heart and lung doses and they, they wanted to see the dosimetry data from, you know, both trials to kind of understand, you know, what dosimetry might help steer a patient towards protons or, or photons. Um, I would argue we don't know enough about heart toxicity to actually make that kind of a claim, right? I don't know if you would agree with that or not. Um, the link between dosimetry and heart toxicity is so flimsy right now, at least. I know that there's a lot of people working on it. Yeah, I, I, that's a great comment, Matt. I, I actually asked that question um, to clarify what the thresholds might be um, because I was also interested and I share your exact opinion and that I also don't think we know specifically what might be the ideal dose threshold to convert someone from a photon technique to protons because, you know, we, I don't think for one that we understand dose to cardiac substructures well enough to see if there's a specific you know, portion of the heart that we should preferentially spare, or if it's mean dose or LAD that we should spare most. And likewise for lungs. So I, I kind of think of, of it along the continuous spectrum that it really is and that all those probably matters. And, and some patients based upon their medical comorbidities may have greater benefit, whereas others with fewer comorbidities, but a larger treatment volume, you know, might also have greater benefit and that we, you know, we really don't know. Well, guys, thanks for joining today. This was really cool. This was very interesting. Uh, I'm uh, happy to have both of you on. Um, our male friends are great, and you know, we, we, we one one of you is uh, one of ours as well. So uh, Danielle does our art, and we love her. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Yeah, it was great. Thanks so much. Right. Yeah, thanks so much. Have a good day, everyone. Bye. See you on Twitter. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> <All right. laughs>